This is Canada Talks Archery. Hi, I'm Kelly Taylor and I'm your host. We're here to talk about anything and everything as it applies to archery from compound and recurve to target and hunting. Canada Talks Archery is proud to have PSE Archery as its presenting sponsor. For quality bows for every application, when you want precision shooting equipment, trust PSE Archery. Check out PSE's latest bow, the Shootdown Pro. Contact your local authorized retailer or visit psearchery.com. And today we're joined by uh, Brandon Schwerib and uh, Virginie Chenier, uh, two noted recurve archers in Canada, heading to the uh, Pan American Games in Santiago, Chile. Welcome to Canada Talks Archery. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So uh, let's start off a little bit about yourselves. Uh, how did you start into archery? Uh, so before I was an archer, I was a gymnast, artistic gymnast, um, and I always loved sports growing up. So when I decided to quit gymnastics, I, I went to a lot of open houses for other sports. And uh, my first coach from archery actually called the gymnastics club that's right beside our archery club in the center. And uh, he asked if any gymnasts had quit recently because uh, gymnastics is one of the sports that's um, a good background for any of other sports like diving all those kinds of sport because the muscles in the back are well developed for archery. Um, so he contacted my parents and I was still in the process of trying a bunch of other sports. So I said, Oh, why not? I'll go try archery. And then I never went back to the other sports after that. Cool. Cool. And Brandon, what about you? Yeah, my, mine's a little bit different. I was not exactly an athlete growing up. Um, I was the kid that was bad at all sports. Um, basketball, hockey, soccer, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I did have a fondness of Lord of the Rings. And when I saw Legolas, I was like, you know what? That's that seems cool. Well, I want to do that. So I would fashion bows and out of sticks and whatever, and just kind of do my little medieval thing. And I know you did some too, right? Like yeah. That when you were yeah. a kid, yeah. Um, but then my parents would try and find to. They're trying to find a place where I can actually learn to shoot. And the after a while, I went to the sportsman show and we found um, there was a tri-archery that they had there, like they always have. And there was a club, the Archers of Caledon, that you can take lessons there. And that's kind of where it started for me. Okay. And um, how did you choose recurve versus compound? I don't know. I think it was kind of a, a, a weird thing. I was, I had the choice. My parents were like, you can choose compound or recurve. And in my head, I wanted to do compound. Um, but then I think for some reason, the upfront cost was a bit higher. Or I'm not sure what the reason was, but we ended up going with recurve and I just stuck with it. I mean, I was 11, so I didn't really care. <laughs> I was just shooting. So, so I had, um, yeah, so I just kind of stuck with recurve. And I think just over time, practicing with my coach and who my first one of my first not my first coach but um, who I started with relatively early Joan McDonald um, she well she was the national coach at the time but eventually she just kind of slowly got me into uh, into competition and I just kind of stuck there so it was yeah for me it was no real reason but I just kind of ended up enjoying enjoying the process more and and kind of slowly enjoying competition with the recurve well you touched on one of the big differences and that is that even now your startup costs and recurve are, are quite a bit less yeah yeah 
So, so actually, we can we can talk about a bit a bit about that afterwards because I have some experience. I, I work at uh, Canada Trail Online, so I so I, I see the prices fluctuate a lot, and it's it's quite interesting to see. And Virginie, what about you? Uh, for me, it's pretty easy answer. Um, from the moment I started gymnastics, my goal was the Olympics. So when I quit whatever sport I was going to take, the Olympics was always the goal. Had to be a uh, pathway. So right from the get-go, it was like, okay, you're not going to touch a compound. Here's a recurve. Do you want to go to the Olympics? This is what you need to shoot. Um, and from the first like 10 years, I would say, I never touched a compound. And I always had that fear that if I did decide to try compound just for fun, I might switch over because I would <laughs> like it more. Um, but I do have a compound now. I shoot it for fun. Uh, but I'm still sticking to recurve. Well, one day you'll discover the power of the dark side, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did you start uh, barebow or did you start Olympic recurve? How, how did that work? For me, it was straight. It was pretty much straight Olympic. Um, of course, like naturally, everyone starts off kind of barebow. So you have the site later on. But it was it was pretty much Olympic from the get-go. Right. So okay. when I got my, my first bow, it was with the slight plunger stabilizer, all that kind of stuff. Bear bow is actually one of the disciplines where I have the least experience with. I've I've tried to shoot bear bow once or twice. It's uh, it's quite a different challenge. It's not something that I uh, I can naturally kind it's, of. Do. It's pretty challenging because it's very intuitive in terms of aiming. Yeah, and also just, um, well, with, with compound, compound, you have your, your draw stop. Recurve, we have a clicker. So those are both our draw checks. And Barebow has none of that. So you're really, like, you really have to be in tune and comfortable with your positioning and your and your shot to, to kind of get it right. That's not something I'm used to yet. So I might try it out one day. Yeah, because competition was my mindset straight into Olympic recurve. I think I had the sight from the second day. And I shot indoor nationals a month and a half after. So, yeah, well, it, was a, it was a quick process for me. Why waste time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when you transitioned to a clicker, how difficult was that for you? It's been so long. I don't remember. But I, I've coached enough, enough people to know that it's quite a, it's quite a difficult challenge. Um, because... What happens with a lot of beginners, and I'm pretty sure it happened to myself as well, where we tend to use our anchor point as our as our shooting reference. So if I see it a lot in beginners where they, they'll come in and the second they touch their nose at anchor, that's when it goes. So they use that as their clicker. So when you're getting used to the clicker, you still have to get, you kind of have to move away from having to touch your face as a point of release. Which we try and teach not. We try and teach people not to do from the get go, but it can happen when you start putting a target up. Um, so it is different, especially because normally people are not as in line as they think they are. So when we put a clicker on, they kind of have to extend themselves even more. So it's definitely uncomfortable. Um, and another very tricky aspect is with a clicker, if you're if you're shooting through the clicker, so if if you're not used to it and you shoot before it clicks, it tears the arrow apart just because it's 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 basically rubbing against the arrow the entire time. So you want to make sure if you want to make sure your arrows are in good condition for a while. 
uh, that you learn to use it properly. Or have a big budget. Or have a big budget, yeah. Yeah. yeah don't have to worry about mind veins all the time. Yeah. I don't recall when I first started using Flickr. I think it was pretty early on. Um, and also, I'm, I'm probably part of the large group of people that struggled with target panic and Flickr panic at some point in their archery career. Um, but I think that's a, a major thing that needs to be taught early that maybe I wasn't, is that the clicker doesn't determine your shot. You still have to be in control of your shot. The clicker is just a checkpoint. And learning those clicker exercises from the beginning, like click the arrow, let down because you weren't ready to shoot it. Like don't let the clicker determine when you're going to shoot. Yeah. And also learning to disassociate from the sound and more associate with the feeling of the clicker. Um, so I know shooting with some music helps. A lot of people are, they are asking questions. If I shoot with headphones on, they're like, oh, how can you hear your clicker? And I'm like, I don't hear it. I just feel it. And that's, at the same time, you won't be distracted with other archers online too. Everyone has a clicker and there's a lot of noise going on. So that can be good too. The one thing that, that always struck me about, because I shoot compound, so, you know, mm-hmm. I've got a back wall and I've got the release aid and all that, but the thing that struck me about a clicker is that it would, it, it seems to me as though the biggest hurdle to overcome is the tendency to have it go click pluck, you know, and still make the correct shot sequence irrespective of the clicker being there in yeah. terms of expanding through the shot and, and having it go just at the right time. Yeah, because I think, I think the trick with that is, is with, that's when we, it takes a lot of practice with the coach as well to kind of help you find where that right spot is. Because if it's, if it's going, if it's going to cluck too fast, it means that you're not at your right, you're not at the right position. So with the coach, it's really pretty much like with, one main difference with compound and reaper form is our shoulder alignment. So compound shoulder alignment is always going to be a little bit broken. So because your point of stability is more towards the front, us, we want our shoulders to be very much straight because we don't have a lateral. So we're holding the weight at the far end. Um, so if, if it's clicking early, that means that it's, it's not at the right place or something's wrong with the alignment or maybe the alignment's good. So, we want to make sure that all the positions are right. And then we put the clicker according. So by the time you get your clicking, you're pretty much almost at your full expansion. So you, so you're, you're not, you're not fighting it, but there's always a little bit of, so it's like um, with compound, if you're using a, if you're using a hinge with a click in it, that's, that's tricky for us. And we're messing around with the compound because we hear the click means go compounds here that's like that means okay it's almost time to go right so we'll, we'll tend to hesitate a lot and it's kind of the same thing when you're starting to use a back tension you hear the click and you're like oh you get that little jump so it's just a matter of controlling of learning to control that and understanding what that click means rather than having it determine what your shot is going to be like, right. like so what do you find the most challenging part about recurve? Is it the fact you don't have a back wall? Um, and, you know, the slightest little difference in draw length is going to change where the arrow lands dramatically, isn't it? Yes. You want to start with that? Uh, where to start with that? Yeah, <laughs> it's a hard one. 
you want me to say? Yeah. Okay. So what what I normally say, I normally explain this to people, is that with compound and recurve, recurve I say is tougher because we don't have a back wall, we don't have a let off. So the weight the weight you draw is the weight you hold. Um. So there's a lot of muscle that's required to us to keep to keep us stable in position solid so the point where it's like we don't practice for for two weeks by by the time you get back to it you feel it compound is trickier because it requires perfection you see it in vegas you see it at the world cups now it's it's like if these guys are not shooting above 700 or if they're not getting a 900 in, in vegas they're not winning so yeah, recurve. I say the hardest thing is is being able to keep up physically with with the demands because it's definitely it's definitely a sport where if you if you don't it's a discipline where if you don't practice a lot it it'll 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 bite you really hard. So in that vein, I mean, you're holding the full draw weight all the way through the shot cycle. Hmm. Do you have specific exercises that you you do to keep your upper body strength up? For me. Uh, for sure, working shoulders in the back in the gym is really important, but also core exercises are also important. Um, a lot of people will maybe not focus on that. They think like, oh, it's all upper body and shoulders. Uh, but your core can definitely help you uh, stabilize your expansion when you're shooting. And then also things that you that are more archery specific, um, that you can do is put um, elastic band around your bow and really work on your uh, form. It's gonna add about eight or 10 pounds to your bow. Um, and it, it lets you do the exact movement you're gonna do when you shoot because you're doing it with your own bow. Um, whereas in the gym, sometimes it's difficult to get those little muscles uh, that, you're, that are very specific to shooting. So that's one thing that you can do in front of the mirror um, just hold your shot and let down a little bit and hold it back again. And you can do that like three times, repeat maybe 15 times over like 15 or 20 minutes. And I think that's a good exercise too, to get used to your bow weight. Uh, but of course you have to go slow if you don't want to get an injury because that, that's not good. We don't want that. Um, and with recurve too, a lot of things we will see is um, tendonitis and shoulder injuries. And unfortunately, when that happens, it never really goes away. You always have like the scar tissue or ligaments, or you're gonna lose a bit of flexibility. So I would say like really go slow with going up in poundage and things like that. I'm sure there are some people out there that that go, oh, I'm a big He-Man. I'm gonna go and um, you know get a 55 pound recurve ball right away. Oh yeah. And and uh, I think that's what we call a mistake. <laughs> yeah um oh if i had a nickel for every time someone came in further with that yeah in the store i didn't work in a store but um one of my friends owned the store here in montreal and uh we heard him a lot of the time saying oh this customer came to the store and he's like oh i want to shoot 60 pounds like it's nothing and then he always had the 120 pound bearable in the store and he would give it to them and be like if you can pull that i'll give you a 60 pound bowl. if not you're gonna listen to me yeah <laughs> most of the time people can't do it but the guy could so like they would listen to him he's like see i know what i'm talking about <laughs> one of the biggest challenges um at our local shop is convincing people that know it's it's really eye dominance that determines what you should start with and people mm -hmm. will argue but i but i but i golf right-handed 
Yeah. But I play baseball right-handed. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Let's start yeah, with we, the right eye first. We would get that a lot as well, where it's, it's, and it, it's, I understand where, where the notion comes from. Um, and of course, it also depends, like some coaches will teach based on hand dominance and some are, are still sticking with eye dominance and both, I mean, both work in my opinion. I'm right-handed, left-eye dominant, and I shoot left-handed. I know most of the lefties on our team are the same. Um, and yeah, so it's it's a lot of, uh, well, of course, misunderstanding because archery is not a sport that gathers a lot of attention. So the nuances behind it are, are difficult. And coming back to the strength thing, what a lot of people don't get is that it's a, it's an endurance sport, right? It's not a sport. It's not a maximum strength sport. So I would there are customers sometimes where they would they would tell me how much they can bench to kind of relate to how much weight they should pull and i said that's you're not even using the same muscle and also you're using it over a longer period of time and it's a slow movement not a fast movement so it doesn't it's it's really about like if you're just starting off in the gym and you want to get good technique do you start off by doing your one rep max or do you try and get go light and really try and get the technique right because that's what's going to allow you to lift more so it's the same thing with archery Right. Eventually, you'll be able to to draw more if your technique is good. But if you're not using the right muscle groups, if you're not putting yourself in the right positioning, you're gonna you're gonna struggle even at a relatively light weight. The same holds for adding uh, weight to your bars too. Oh yes, especially. You know, a lot of people will see you know they'll see what Brady Ellison shoots and go, well, I want exactly that. Not yeah. yet. He yeah. didn't go there right away. You know, he got yeah. there over time. And I think I think that's a that's a, a big thing with I'll say like high performance sport in general is that when we see the athletes like regardless of sport you see the result you see the end result and and it's easy to not think of how long it took them to get there like you look at the gymnasts and how they can lift themselves on the rings or the bars and and of course you would know more than anyone it's like you look at it and you're like yeah, it doesn't look too bad and then you try and do a pull up and it's impossible so. <laughs> It's definitely a question of seeing the, yeah, you see the result, you don't see the process. So it's easy to kind of make that extrapolation of like, oh, it can't be that bad. It's our job also to make it look easy. So you'll watch sport on TV, golfers or anything like that, and it looks flawless. So you'll be like, oh, we'll try that too. And then you'll give your bowl to someone and then it will not look like what you do. And you'll be like, oh, it's a lot harder than I thought, or it looks a lot more sophisticated like in the, a bow in my head looks like that and yeah that's something that people like, don't necessarily get right away but yeah okay so for both of you what do you consider the highlights of your careers because i i came from a like i'm in a different position at the moment at this point in time that we're talking whereas i i actually technically resigned from the team this year or sorry, last year, going into this year, because I want to take a different approach to how I um, how I view competition. It started getting to the point where I was viewing competition in a very negative way. Um, just all like the pressure that I would put on myself and and where I found myself in the sport. So it was it was a time good time for me to kind of back away and reevaluate. And with that, I was able to kind of view work on myself with the help of V and a lot of others view competition in a different way, view myself in a different way. 
And so being able to achieve what I did this year, not just because of what it brought me in terms of results, but also what it brought internally is definitely a highlight because it's in, in high performance competition, it's easy to, even if you perform well, to not feel as fulfilled as you ought to feel or as you would like to feel. Um, just because we're always looking for the next thing, we always want more. Um, but I think being able to do it in a different mindset, kind of, it's a lot more fulfilling than, I mean, it's not a gold, it's not an Olympic medal yet, it's not a, but it's still a win in my books. And for me, that's a big highlight. For me, the highlight, um, I could have different answers to that question uh, every time we ask. Um, but I had a lot of up and downs in my career. So I think one of my big highlights for me would be the Pan American Championships in 2018, which was also the Pan Am Games qualifier. Um, so I won the qualifier individually. Um, and that meant a lot to me because I had just come back from two very hard year. 2016, I was parted, I was on the team, but I was struggling a lot. And then by the end of the year, I could barely shoot. I spent most of 2017 shooting a left-handed bow to try to beat my target panic and I was shooting 12 pounds and I kind of just worked my way back up. Um, so 2018, being able to prove to myself and the people that were in charge back then that I deserved my spot on the team and then make the team, get invited to training camps and qualify for Pan Ams and then go there. I finished seventh in the Pan American Championships. I beat Ida uh, Roman, which finished uh, second at the London Olympics. So for me, it was, it meant a lot to be able to come back from that big struggle and prove to myself that I could still do it. Well, that's pretty cool. So in terms of dealing with the pressure of competition, um, my first podcast was with uh, Dustin Watson just after he won the uh, World Field Championship. Mm -hmm. and, and he said one of the things that he takes to competition is he sets goals that don't necessarily revolve around winning. You know, he'll set a goal of, uh, you know, I want to make this many um, sixes, you know, if it's field, mm -hmm. right? Or I want to make, yeah. uh, I, I want to get this score, right? And, mm -hmm. and letting the competition fall that way. Um, he found particularly in Yankton, um, it, it, it really helped his nerves when he's up there shooting, particularly when he gets into the sort of the, the later rounds, right? Do you, do you find that as well? I think that's really helpful to set a goal that you can control because Often you'll hear, oh, I want to finish top three, I want to finish top eight, but you're you're facing the elements when you're there, right? So if you set a, a certain score also, if it's really windy and everyone's dropping like 40 points, um, then you're going to be really upset with your performance, but you have to put it into perspective. And then the same way if you want a podium, but then we shoot matches, right? So you could have the second best uh, score on the field during your match but the one person that shot better than you is the your opponent so and you don't have any control over the opponent it's not like when you're boxing or you're doing a tennis tennis match you're both doing your thing and whatever you do doesn't really affect the other you don't have control over that so you can say i would 
my goal would be to finish on the podium, but here are the goals that I can control. So I would like to have this goal for uh, my mental game, have this goal for my my technique and things like that. That helps me take me out of my head as well and dealing with the nerves of like, oh, what if, what if. It's like, well, here are the things I can do and I can really control. So how about focusing on that? And then you kind of have to say whatever happens, happens. I know everyone wants to win. Of course, you're going to try to win. Uh, but you have to be okay with, well, you know what? I shot 29s all the way and I shot 30s. And yes, I could have shot 30s, but I'm still happy with 29s. It's over my average. Like you got to put things in perspective. Yes, yeah. it's frustrating, but over time you'll learn. And then more often than not, it will work in your favor if you keep doing that. Well, you know, when someone says, well, I want a podium. Well, you know, no kidding, Sherlock. Everyone wants a podium, right? It's all about yeah. building that mental pathway to get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's definitely like on that same on that same token, we were one of the things that we uh, we were working on with uh, one of the first sports I, I worked with was really we had three types of goals we would work on. It would be an outcome goal, a performance goal, and a process goal. So, you, of course, you have your outcome goal, like where would you want to finish? Like, ideally, what would it look like? Performance goal, what would like what would a good error average be? What would a good score be? That kind of stuff. But yeah, the big key was the process goal, which is what B was talking about, which is what Dustin's talking about, is what what can you control? Like not related to to score, not related to where you finish is is okay. Like I told myself I would follow these keywords in my mental plan, or I would I would try and focus on this this aspect of my shot or something. It could be or whatever you 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 feel is most useful and if you did that and if you did your you did gave it your all and you did that then cool that's already good if you happen to perform well as a result even better if you happen to place as a result that's great but if you even if you didn't do those last two things the fact that you're able to keep committed to what your plan was and what your your process goals were the others will fall in place in due time. They just didn't happen today. That's not the end of the world. Yeah. And when you get closer to those finals and you get further into competition, tens tension arising, um, really focus on your plan. Trust your plan. Trust your process. It worked until then. So why are you doubting it now? Yeah. Just remember why you can do it and don't think about the what ifs. Just trust the plan. If you start changing things and then you're disappointed with the outcome, it's like, well, why did you start changing things? It was working up until then. Like, why? <laughs> but I mean, it's easy to say. Yeah. It's hard to do. But you you really need to keep going at it and you'll see it'll work in the end. The one thing that you hear a lot in uh post-match interviews with the winners is I stuck to my game plan and it worked. Mm -hmm. Right. And you hear that so often. And yet it it can be so easy for some self-doubt to creep in as, yeah. as you progress up the up the ladder, right? And um having the mental fortitude to get over that, to stick with your game plan, I think is one of the probably one of the most challenging things a sports psychologist can work with and can yeah. you to do that. Yeah, it's definitely it's it, it is one of the challenges. I mean, the self-doubt is what makes it human in the end. Um, man, but that's also, it's, it's also something that is, it is more workable 
and more achievable than a lot of us think. It does require a bunch of effort um, and no no short amount of skill, but it, it's something that can be developed. It's a skill like any other. Um, and yeah, and that's when, and it's something that's said so often, like I stuck to my game plan at work that it ends up being overlooked by a lot of people because it's nothing new. So people, when it's not, if it's not novel, they, people dismiss it as, as not important, but it is the most important. And honestly, usually what makes the winners at a level, at a high level is not, is not any special set of skills that they might have that the others don't. It's just their ability to stick to the plan that they've been working on and trust it a hundred percent and trust themselves a hundred percent, which, uh, which not everyone can do day in, day out. And developing your plan too is, it's going to be trial and error. So as you go, it's like, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What can we change? Let's try this next time. And then you might stick to your plan, but it might not work. So again, analyze what worked, what didn't work. And then over time, you see the winners on the big stage. More often than not, it's always the same group of people. But it, for them, it they, they will say, I stuck to my plan, but it took a while to get that plan to work. Now they can 100% trust it. They know that this is the plan for them. So as you start competing and going to those international events, it will be a little bit of a trial and error, but you're not going to get better if you don't fully apply your plan. So, I mean, I went through it a lot. So maybe yeah. my plan is not 100% yet, but it's definitely better than it was yesterday. So. I guess the self-doubt can creep in too when you get to the to the upper echelons and your you know your your next match is against uh Brady Ellison or Mete Gazaz and and it's like this is the Olympic champion I shouldn't be shooting with him right and then that self-doubt creeps in there right and and having the ability to to just tell yourself it's the same 70 meters it's the same size target it's the same arrows it's the same bow, just go and shoot bow, right? Yeah, and I think that's something that we definitely saw or that you could almost visually see when Eric was going up against Mete. And and he was talking about it a, a bit after. Well, we, we spoke about it afterwards at trials. Was, um, was yeah, he, that's pretty much the, the mindset he had and also making sure that he's still enjoying the whole thing while he goes up, while he's going for it. And you could, you could see it on the stage and um, I won't talk about like whatever opinions people had on it, um, but just the the global aspect was, was yeah, something to help remove the self doubt was just remember why you're there in the first place to enjoy yourself, to have a good time. Like sure, you're shooting against the Olympic champion, but cool, have fun with it. If you win, great. If you don't, still way better than uh, still way better than losing being mad. So. Um, so no, I think I think that was it was a good kind of visual aspect of kind of seeing that in, in play. But yeah, just in general, it's like when you like you said when you go at it, uh, the self doubt will creep in. But yeah, it's the same same format, especially it's target. It's not even field. The field doesn't change. Like the venue will change, but you're still at seventy meters on a one twenty two face. It's not like you're shooting at a different angle every time. The other thing that strikes me a lot of times when I see people up on the uh, on the shooting line. You know, especially if it's like the semis or the finals, I'm I'm sure they're like a duck on water, right? They look calm and collected on the outside, but their leg, their mental legs are probably just swimming furiously inside, right? 
And it probably happens to everybody. And you just have to tell yourself, look, he's going through the same thing I am. So let's just get through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much, pretty much it. And unless you're like, you're like Mike Schlosser or Brady, where it's like, if you're not on that stage, it's more of an issue. Um, but, but yeah, for most people, when you see them get on the stage, it's, it's, I mean, I, I was the first time I was, or the only time I was on the stage was in 2016 in Colombia. We managed to make the bronze medal match for the for the for the team round. I I wasn't so fortunate where I was able to look calm on the outside. I think it was it was mentioned multiple times how nervous I was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely you go you go through it the first time. If you really, unless it's really your thing, the first few times it's gonna be uncomfortable. But. It's also once you're done, you're like, okay, eh, that wasn't so bad. Like, sure, it was scary, but I'd do it again. It's like it's like a roller. I mean, I'm not a roller coaster guy, but it's what from what a bunch of people have told me. It's like a roller coaster. You're horrified when you're doing it, but afterwards you get back in line and do it again. And I think that's one of the fun things about the sport is that you have like we've all been there, especially with the sport. You have so many days where like just in training where it's like you have bad days terrible training days like where just nothing worked but you just want to go again like you had a bad end and you're like i just want to get back to the line and keep trying so yeah same thing whether it's training or like on the stage it's it might not be the great it might not always be the greatest experience but there's something about it that just makes you want to do it again yeah and shooting on the stage too one thing that helped me is remembering everyone would love to be in your place and that kind of takes a bit of the nerve away um, and enjoy the experience. I talked with one archer once who shot a match on the stage. And when he was done, I was like, how was it? He's like, I don't remember anything. <laughs> so that's how nervous he was, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, you kind of lost the experience of like enjoying being there. Like you, you won the right to be on the stage, enjoy the experience. Yes, you want to win the match, but also like, not everyone gets to do it and you need to fight hard to get on the stage. So take your moment and enjoy. So when it comes to target panic with recurve archery, um, I'm wondering how much it is like with compound where, you know, we, we say the, 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 the trick is to remember that you're never going to get the pin or the dot to settle precisely on the, on the X. The idea is to let it sort of float around and then just let the shot happen. And, odds are it's going to break in the center. Is that the same in, in recurve? That's definitely, it's it's actually very similar with um, with compound and recurve. Compound, you'll tend to see the punching of the release. With recurve, you'll see a lot of, of plucking and what we call Hail, Hail Marys, where we're trying to, where it's a very rough shot and uncomfortable and we're trying to save it. Because um, it's just, it's your body telling you to, it's your body saying like, hey, this isn't right. Like we gotta fix it. Target panic is something that I've I've actually I haven't experienced it to to a high degree. I have less experience with working on it. I just I feel the pressure and anxiety that comes with competition. But yeah, the, it's the same thing with recurve, especially because we don't have we don't have uh, lenses. So us we just line up our pin, our dot, or our side aperture, whatever have you, with the target and you kind of let it yeah you kind of let it flow 
us, we won't notice it. Well, I feel like we don't notice it as much because we don't have that lens to magnify it. So it's always going to be, it's always going to be floating. But yeah, there, I have known some archers who they couldn't even line, it was kind of like you as well, they couldn't even line their pin up with the target because the panic would just take over. Um, and they will actually be able to talk a bit more about it, but a lot of it is like to help fight that. There's a lot of behind the scenes work that you have to do with sports psych, psychologists, um, and dryland training when you're shooting to really work at it and chip away at it bit by bit. One of them was, I think you would say, you would just go to the range, you wouldn't shoot a single arrow. You just draw, aim, and let down. Draw, aim, and let down. And that's one thing that I am I work on with some of some of my younger um, students. Because when you're a kid and you see the target, you, you kind of, the second, it was kind of like you were saying, uh, Kelly, when you line up your pin to the center, you automatically want to let go. And I see that a lot. So it's just we're trying to work on that from the get-go and trying not to trying to understand that the yellow is not something to be scared of which of course is is easy to rationalize but in your head your fight or flight still wants to take over but yeah a lot of it will be will be just even even if it's about putting a 122 up at five meters and you're just staring at the big yellow to help you just get used to it and be at ease with seeing it um and it'll take months, it can take years, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, it's just about doing those little little things every day to help combat that feeling and just getting more comfortable with it. I think you, you, you'll probably add, add a lot more to what I said. Uh, a little bit, you covered a lot of it. But um, one thing I do notice with recurves um, is that sometimes it's not even about the target. Sometimes the archer can't even bring the string all the way to their face before releasing the arrow. And I mean, I've had that problem. My target panic was so bad, I could barely pull back the bow like a couple inches before releasing the arrow. Um, at that point, and I'm not suggesting to do that and I don't have all the answers, but what I went through is that I, I took a clean break of like two, three months from shooting. And then when I started shooting again, I shot from the left side. Um, I found that if you have target panic, and you shoot on the other side. I don't know if it's because you're not used to it or a different part of your brain is working, but I didn't have target panic on the other side. So I kind of got just used to the feeling of shooting and not having the stress of, am I gonna shoot the arrow too quick? You're kind of relearning to shoot too, because it's a, it's the new side. It's, it's the same form, but you're not used to it, different muscles. And then once I got comfortable on the left side, I switched back to the right side low poundage, no target, just pulling back the the string, shooting some arrows, slowly adding the target. You put a 122 at five meters, uh, you learn to aim at it, shoot some arrows, slowly increase the poundage. And then at some point I put the clicker back. And then that's where earlier I was talking about the clicker controlling you. That's where I really learned to not let the con clicker control me. And really decide when I let the arrow click. So that's when I would do um, a lot of uh, what Brennan was saying, going to the range, just aiming, clicking, aiming at the target, letting down. And I think I did that for maybe a month and slowly building up to a smaller target and then building up to five meters, 10 meters. 
I found that it was harder to do the more the further back you were shooting. Uh, so when I finally got to 70, I was able to aim at a target, click an arrow and let down, which I was never able to do before. You would come to training and be like, okay, just click your arrow and let down. Do I have to do that? Because that's, that's never going to happen. But now I can actually do that after all the work I did. And of course, target panic is always something I have on my mind that maybe it's going to creep back. But I know I learned a lot of things with it and I have skills that I didn't have before. So I can rely on those and it helped me. I mean, we could talk about this for like an hour. <laughs> it was a long two years. But Next time we can want to have a, yeah. we'll have a full target panic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have all the answers. It's some things work for me. Some some things won't work for everyone. But yeah, a lot of keywords in my head. Also, during my shooting process, that helps. And one thing I do is that I don't let down. Um, our national coach at the moment is um, he's strong with that. He doesn't like when people let down because you let that option go. No, yeah, you let the doubt creep in and you let the, the option of letting down is a thing you could do. And then your brain starts worrying and overthinking. And he'd rather you commit 100% to your shot. And even if it's a miss, he won't care if you committed and you shot the shot. Um, so that's one thing that helped me too. Um, not suggesting it's necessarily the solution for everyone. Um, but for me, removing the option was something that helped me too so well it, it probably helps in terms of um sort of building that mental pathway to getting into the right position from the start yeah and it helps with um knowing that even if it's not perfect you can still put it in the middle which i think target panic not necessarily the pin in the yellow but the target panic where you can't even pull the string back um, at some point, you'll just feel your bow hand in in the grip, and you'll feel uncomfortable, and you'll decide not to shoot. You didn't even start shooting. Like, from the first thing you do, you're like, nope, that doesn't feel right, and you don't want to shoot it. So shooting all your shots will build that confidence that, okay, you know, this felt a little off, but I can still shoot in the middle. And sometimes you won't have a choice. Sometimes the the wind is going to get gusty and you have 20 seconds to shoot. You won't have time to let down. You need to like really trust yourself that even if that happens, I can put it in the middle. Or you're shooting a team round and someone else let down. You don't have time. Like you, you know you can get those shots off and trust them. So I think for that, it's, it's really good. The one thing that was kind of an epiphany for my shooting um, was when I started getting better at, at executing the shot i realized that even if the sight picture didn't look great it's still if i if i executed correctly it ended up in the center right and yeah. being comfortable with that was <laughs> the biggest change in my archery at least being able to put it in the center even when you're thinking it you know it it broke at a you know a, a nine or whatever right and yeah, yeah um and it, and it goes in the center um in compound um so i mean we can speed up our bottom or our top cam or whatever to you know do creep tuning and mm -hmm. and and all that sort of stuff um aside from getting your brace height right there's probably not a lot of variables in 
the actual relationship of the string to the bow but what kinds of things do you play with and experiment with to try and get the right setup i just want to make a quick note what you said about before i get into that what you said about um if the shot breaks well and even if it's not aimed perfectly in the center is the exact thing that i try and coach all the beginner intermediate archers that i have because it's a very hard concept to understand but it's 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 exactly right. It's, it's if the shot breaks properly, it'll go in the middle, regardless if it's not there. I just want to get that point out. Um, but yeah, when I'm coming back to equipment, um, yeah. Oh man. So so yeah, tuning a compound, tuning a recurve, different in their own way. But in eat with both, there's a big relation to if we take out every other aspect, there is a relation to how the equipment performs versus how you perform. Now, always the equipment is a machine and it will perform the same. It's always the person that's the variable. Um, but we're trying to reduce that variable as much as possible. So with us, the main thing that we'll do is once we have the basic setup, so our tiller, we have our, our tiller adjustment, which is our limb our limb synchronization, essentially. Um, so compounds do have something similar, but basically for, for a compound, you just try and turn out the bolts the same amount each time because your arrow is supposed to be mostly centered. Us, we actually don't pull the string exactly in the center of the bow. Because um, our grip is usually the center, the pivot point or the center point of the bow, which means that we're shooting a little bit high. The arrow is just slightly above the center point. So our tiller is going to, to change. It's going to be, usually it's a bit smaller on the bottom. So we that's kind of our, our first step when it comes to setting up the bow. And then we'll have our, our limb alignment to make sure that we're shooting in a nice, even plane. Um, our center shot, all that kind of stuff. Um, basic bow setup. The big thing for us is going to be bear shaft tuning and micro tuning. So whereas compounds, they can use, often you can do bear shaft tuning, but also paper tuning to kind of help you out. Us will rely a bit more, although we can do paper tuning, we rely more on bear shaft tuning and micro tuning to really get the utmost performance from our setup. And I was actually I was doing that for the past two days on my on my bow, and I have to do it again for my backup bow. And like I said, micro tuning can take days to do because we have we have our plunger, and our plunger has clip settings for different tensions in the spring, and the spring helps fine tune how much the arrow flexes as it leaves the bow. So. What we're, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to find the setting that gives us the best overall performance. So what we'll do is that we'll put it at one setting. We'll shoot a score. So I was doing scores at 36. It gives me kind of a good half 720. And then what you do is you put it at another setting. You either tighten it or loosen it by a few clicks. You do another score. And you repeat that process again and again. And we have an app that helps us not only plot where the arrows go, but also find the group size. Um, so you find what gives you kind of the good mix of a nice score, but also what gives you the better group size. And that gives you an idea of what setting, once everything else is said and done, what setting is going to be the best for you right now. So it's an arduous, it's an arduous process, but it's definitely something that when you're getting ready for a major, major competition and you just want to make sure everything's good, it's a good, good habit to take. So in, in compound, we call that process making the bow as forgiving as possible. Yeah. 
Is that similar for you, for you guys? Same, same concept, exact same concept. Because yeah, this isn't gonna, it's not going to increase your scores by any means. Like if you're, if you're a 330 shooter, it's not gonna make you a 340 shooter. But if you're a 330 shooter and you're getting one or two arrows that are going into the seven or six because of reasons, it can kind of turn those into eights, eights or nines or sevens or eights or whatever. But say if you over the course of five arrows, if it can gain you one point per arrow, that's five points over a score. So it's still, um, yeah, it's more about just yeah making the bow more forgiving and just um, it help it helps with the confidence a little bit where we're not questioning anything. Is the relationship between the front stabilizer weight and the back stabilizer weights similar in recurve and you know in in, in compound? Our starting point, and we always sort of tweak it from here, but our starting point is that you have the same amount of torque on both sides, mm-hmm. right? So if you've got 30 inches, 30 pound, uh, 30 ounce inches of torque at the front of the stabilizer bar, and you've got a 12 inch stabilizer, you want to have, you know, set it up so that it's 30 inches of 30 ounce mm-hmm. inches of torque as well. Is, is that similar or is it different in recurve? I'll probably say with Rieger is not nearly as technical. Uh, we're very much, we kind of have like, the standard we'll start someone off on is like sometimes in between two to four ounces out front and two ounces on the side kind of thing. Um, if they have a side rod. For us, what, well, for it's also it's very, very personal. Like it's still personal for compound, but Rieger is very personal because we'll have different, we can have like a, a standard flat V-bar and an extension, or you can have no extension and long angle downside rods. So you'll see that a lot in recurve where it depends what kind of follow through you're looking for um, and what hold pattern you're looking for. But I know for me personally, what I like is having a strong holding pattern. So I like to have a bit more weight on the back, but also it's kind of like compound. If you have too much weight on the back, you can torque it a lot easier. It's the same thing with recurve. So we want to have a still enough weight on the front that's kind of combating that that willingness to torque for me i like have like i said I like having a neutral center of gravity so we can actually if we if we hold our bow from kind of the extension upside down you'll kind of see where the bow balance is and that's kind of your center of mass i like to have it a little bit closer to the to the riser so my follow-through is not going to be as like you know how the koreans have like the nice swing on their on their bows which is a little forced, but they do it on purpose. Um, mine will be a lot less intense because my center of gravity is a lot more neutral compared to out front. These, on the other hand, will be a bit more forward, so you're going to get more of a swing. So yeah, it's definitely not as technical. It goes very much with kind of what you're trying to go for. Like, do you want a, do you want your follow through to have be a bit more lively, or because that's giving you your your the finish that you want or do you want the holding for your aiming to be a little bit um, more solid all right well and, best of luck in santiago brandon schwereb and virginie chenet uh thank you for being on canada talks archery and enjoy the pan am games thank, thank you. you very much and thanks for having us